From the U.S. Army, a national touring band and rock radio programmer, it's Nick Summers. And this is The Right Side of Rock. Here's Nick Summers. Welcome to Episode 5, The Right Side of Rock. Yes, this is Nick Summers. A couple of weeks ago, I referenced a book all about the music industry. You thought the mob was corrupting politics in some of your larger municipalities. How about the record industry? It's called The Hitman by Frederick Dannon. Power brokers and fast money inside the music business. If you have any interest whatsoever in the music business and how things used to work, it's quite different now due to digital downloads, things like that. And we'll talk about that on a later episode. But this is back in the day, the heyday, if you will. Interesting, when the book was released uh, in the early 90s, the Los Angeles Times did a review on it and had an article. And it starts out by saying, Record moguls say the funniest things about each other. In Frederick Dannon's caustic new book, Hitmen, Power Brokers, Fast Money Inside the Music Business, Giant Records chief Irving Azoff called CBS Records' Walter Yetkinoff, the chairman there, Dennis the Menace meets Attila the Hun. Geffen Records' David Geffen labeled Clive Davis as an egomaniac and an arrogant blank. Does any of that kind of sound familiar? That whole thing, I think, is very similar to what's, what, what goes on in D.C. These giant people in charge of these big corporations snipping at each other like school kids. The Los Angeles Times goes on to say that Frederick Dannon was served with many legal papers by some of these record industry top execs. Retraction requests for all the things that were said in the book. But they were just threats. Despite the noisy complaints, no one actually made any legal efforts. In other words, the cease and desist were just on record exec company letterhead saying, hey, you better stop this or we'll take legal action. It never did. Quoted in the LA Times article, the author said, that book went through legal review like it was the Nuremberg trial, said Damon. I'm still waiting to hear even one substantial error in it. He never did. It never went to court. No one ever disputed anything that went on. And why is that important? Because let me tell you, you can read all about how Rudy Giuliani took down the mobs. You can hear about the Chicago mobs. You can watch the Hollywood glorified movies about the mob. Nothing is as more crooked, if that makes any sense, than the record industry. Here's one of the excerpts from that book. Again, hitmen, power brokers, and fast money inside the music business. I'll just reiterate, if you have any interest whatsoever in the music industry and how things kind of got to how they are now, this is a great book. I'm just going to read one of the uh, a couple of the paragraphs from the book. CBS Records could not afford a replay of 1979, a disastrous year for the whole industry. CBS earned 51 million before taxes on sales of just over 1 billion. That was a drop of 46% in the earnings from 1978. The industry's total sales slumped 11% to 3.7 billion. Slumped 3.7 billion. Yeah, the first decline since World War II. Until 1979, the business was judged recession-proof. Take a look at where it's at now. It's a disaster now. The book goes on, you couldn't make too many bad mistakes because sales growth covered them up. So it seemed anyway, to an industry drunk on the disco craze, after the phenomenal success of Saturday Night Fever released in 1977, the public was thought to have an insatiable appetite for dance music. But it didn't. Record companies force-fed millions of albums to retailers and then booked them as sales. Again, a crooked move. You, You can't get away with it nowadays because everything is digitally tracked. But back in the day, if they would send out just, for example, a million copies of this one album to retailers before they even cha-ching on the cash register, they were logged as a sale. 
How crooked is that? That's like you making a product and then listing it on eBay or whatever you would do nowadays or Amazon. And just by the very act of you listing it, it was logged as a sale. Crooked. Labels thought they could impose limits on the amount of unsold merchandise the racks could return. Back in the day, they used to call those cutouts. Do you remember the albums that would have just like a little corner that was cut off? That was called a cutout. It was a return or deeply discounted. You could get those things for 50 cents to a buck. Back when albums were five, ten bucks at the most. Unwanted records thundered back by the ton. The record industry had become a victim of its own hype. They would hype these bands that the record companies thought that you, the public, would want. And they would lie and say that we've already got a million sales of this record. What are you waiting for? Thinking, well, I don't want to miss out. Again, that whole philosophy can be applied to just about anything. Think about the Biden administration. Think about what Congress says. Think about what the mainstream media says. They force feed you this narrative that makes you think, well, this is so widely accepted. This is what everybody thinks. It's a tried and true application of this, well, like Dr. Robert Malone said, this mass hysteria. And it's all being cultivated by the purveyors of the narrative and then echoed lockstep like willing accomplices in the mainstream media. You could see it even back then in the record company, record companies. Now, there was something else in the record industry called independence. And what the independent guys were is they were promoters that had direct lines to the program directors, the folks that decide the music that goes on the radio stations. Now, as a rock radio programmer, I dealt with independents, and they were actually quite helpful. Being in a smaller market, many times you wouldn't have direct access to the record labels. You would have these independents that were contracted through the record labels. Now, the independent record promoters ended up getting so powerful they almost could decide what a hit was and what it wasn't. There were times where you would have a song that was number one on the charts. Back in the day, that meant how many radio stations were playing it. They didn't track sales. It was airplay. Then the charts evolved into airplay and sales, and now it's just sales. And there's still charts that track airplay, but they don't mean as much as they used to. But if you could be a reporting station to a Inside magazine, inside uh, the industry magazine called r r Radio and Records, if you could be a reporting radio station, you were worth your weight in gold. I'm going to tie all this up. Just try to follow along. I'm there is so much information. I'm trying to get it quick and simple. Now, what the independents did is they started to charge more money. And the record companies were starting to think, well, we don't need them. We can pay our own guys to promote the records. So they tried and failed to lock out the independents. Guess what happened? None of those big records were getting played. There were times, who remembers the band Loverboy? Kind of a pop rock hit, pre-Bon Jovi, heavy guitar, heavy keyboards. It sounded like a hard rock band at the time, but they were kind of a pop thing. Their first big breakthrough hit was Turn Me Loose. Well, the record company thought they had a huge hit on their hands, and they decided that they would promote this record without any independence. They were just going to go direct to the radio stations. Every week, you'd get a call from one of the record company promoters, and they'd say, hey, we're really hot on this single. Uh, we'd like you to add it out of the box. And what that meant was the ad date was, let's just say, June 2nd, and everybody's going to add it on that day. And then it's going to show up in the charts with a bullet. That's where all those phrases came from. What happened was a lot of radio stations had deals with independent record promoters. 
Now, they say payola is dead. It's not. At least it wasn't. Even back up into the uh, 90s, early 2000s, when I was programming rock radio stations, they didn't give you cash outright to play a record. What they would do is they would give you a, quote, promotional budget. All that meant was, hey, if you add so X amount of singles per year, we're going to put you and your reporting station, as I mentioned before. In other words, you had a little bit of power. You reported your playlist to R&R. You would get your promotional budget of, let's just say, I think ours was $40,000. Doesn't that sound illegal? Yes and no. They wouldn't give you cash, but they would give you money for station t-shirts, money for trips, money for prizes to give away on the air. Completely above board and legal, but it sure sounds like payola. Alan Freed, remember that guy? Supposedly coined the term rock and roll. He was caught getting money to play certain records to feature on his radio station. And that that built the hype up and people got excited about it. So they figured out a way, the record companies did, to continue that practice. But it was through the independent record promoters and they just labeled as, as I mentioned, station promotional budgets. But it was the same darn thing. And the practice of payola really honestly continued all the way through the 80s into the early 90s. I wasn't programming rock radio then. I wasn't even in radio. But I was coming in at the tail end of that. And I had so many program directors tell me, oh, yeah, we used to get records with money. We used to get records with, you know, Coke. It's just, add this and we'll give you more of that kind of thing. Add this meaning add the single to your playlist. Well, back to the Loverboy story. They decided to kind of exclude the independent record promoters and do it on their own. The record company is, that is. And Loverboy failed. Loverboy was a sure hit. That first album with, like I said, Turn Me Loose and, you know, Get Lucky, all that stuff. That's the one with the uh, the tight leather pants, the red leather pants on the cover of the album, in case you forgot. So Loverboy's success was delayed because of an argument between the independent promoters and the record companies. Again, apply that philosophy, apply that behavior or that observation of behavior to what's going on today. Except it's worse, whether it be in D.C., whether it be in even local politics. It's just so funny how corruption... Anytime there's money involved, you know that there are corrupt individuals behind the scenes trying to make what's theirs, trying to take their share. And the only people that suffer are, in this case, the unsuspecting record-buying public. In the case of lately, well, take a look at the gas prices. Take a look at your health care insurance. Take a look at your grocery bill. All of this, to me, is kind of important because this really sets up to where we're at now. The record labels got so big and controlled so much and made so much money that it left a lot of struggling artists out in the cold. Then they even, it used to be, there was a recent article that Gene Simmons was talking about, uh, just came out last week, right before Memorial Day. And he said, there's just, there's almost no way we could make it nowadays. Because back in the day, the record label, for sake of an argument, would give you a million dollar contract to produce whatever it is, two albums. Now, You got that million dollars. You got an advance and then you got installments. No matter how you sold, that money was yours. They quickly learned, well, we don't have to do that. We'll give you a million dollar contract, but we're going to take out our share for advertising, promotion for the record. What about recording the record, which could cost several hundred thousands of dollars? There were many bands that that you and I potentially 
grew up watching on MTV where their road crew made more than they did on the road. I saw it for myself. And many times they were dropped from their record labels after getting this million whatever it was dollar contract owing the record company. They never got that money. The record companies would lie, cheat, and steal to keep whatever it is that they owned the bands, whether it be in royalties, whatever the case may be. Now, I mostly dealt in rock radio, but I had a little brief stint in top 40 radio, and it was even worse there because that was the number one format for many years. Now it's country. Country and talk radio are kind of king. Top 40 is not near as what it used to be. The point to all of this is that if you enjoy the behind-the-scenes stuff with the music industry of yesteryear and a little bit today as, as we slide into the digital age and have probably for the last almost 20 years now, I mean, you remember the old version of, who remembers LimeWire, which was it was kind of like Napster in a way, but it was less organized. It was just file sharing. All these file sharing programs and you know message boards type thing. And you had bands like Metallica who were trying to uh, shut it down because it basically does. It infringes on the artist's potential way to earn a living. And it's really the record company's fault. They got so big, so bloated, so powerful, so arrogant, so we're bulletproof kind of attitude that they missed what was going on in technology. Technology was passing them by. They had an opportunity early on to embrace the technology, find a way to monetize it for themselves and, of course, for the artists in a way that the artists would agree. And you wouldn't have the file sharing that you have. You always are going to have the black market on everything, no matter what it is. There's going to be the black market. There's going to be a way to get stuff cheap and or free that you should be paying for. To my way of thinking as a songwriter, you know, that's not fair. Why should I give it away? And that's what today's artists are forced to do. New artists, people that you've never heard of with these YouTube channels. Listen to my new song. Listen to my new song. It's free. Their thinking is that you're going to like that one new song that you'll buy the album. It never works. These people, many of them, tremendous songwriters, tremendous artists, incredibly talented, will never see the light of day. And the record companies did it to themselves. So look up the book. It, I think if, if any of this conversation, this discussion, if any of this interested you at all, Hitmen, Power Brokers and Fast Money Inside the Music Industry by Frederick Dannon. Read it in its entirety. You see the correlation between the crooked record industry. The mob was definitely involved, by the way. And, of course, the D.C. Swamp. It'll make you sick. I'm going to pick something off my wall here in the studio. I've got my home studio where I record these podcasts. And I'll let you in on a little background information on some of my equipment that I use. For you guitar players, musicians, you might find it a little interesting. You're listening to The Right Side of Rock with Nick Summers. You know, I decided for uh, this uh, this particular uh, episode of the podcast, I'd actually strap on one of the guitars. I'm in my music room. That's where I record these things. And, and I've got a, a really nice uh, computer set up. I've got my interface, which happens to be a uh, PV uh, mixing board, which uh, goes USB. And up here, I've got several amps. Some of these, uh, you know, I almost sometimes wish this was video. I've got uh, a couple of the original amps that I toured with in my touring band back in the day. They were the PV VTM 120s. Now, for you 
equipment nerds like me, you think, wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, they don't make those anymore. They're highly sought after. And and I've got two of them. And depending on the size room we'd use, I'd bring in both half stacks or sometimes just one. But I never sold those. I still have them. Pretty impressive. I've also got a PV Viper 120, and I'm currently playing through the uh, PV 30, which is, it's a Viper 30. And that's pretty much my practice amp up here. Uh, my main stage gear is a PV Invective 120 with uh, the, the 412 and the 212 cabinets. And that, to me, that is the best amp next to the PV VTM 120. Uh, the Invective 120 is probably the best amp I've ever played in my entire life. All different kinds of music. I mean, you can get you can clean it up pretty good. And and for those of you that don't play guitar, what I mean by clean it up. On this, on the on the Viper that I'm using right now, I gotta hit a switch, and this one cleans up nice. Has a little compression on it, a little chorus, teeny tiny bit of delay. There's some reverb in there as well. And my guitar is the PVHP2. I have the uh, the PVHP, which is what uh, Hartley PV, the founder, Hartley PVHP, is what he called the Wolfgang. Because when Eddie Van Halen ended his agreement uh, with PV and went to Fender, he took the Wolfgang name with him. So PV was like, well, we've got a great guitar here. We've got to keep it up. So they made some refinements to it, changed it a little bit, and they called it the HP. Well, then those things kind of went out of production for a while, and it was about in 2016, 17, there was rumors they were going to bring it back, and they did, and they call it the HP2, which is just, this is, I've got three of these things, incredible. Retail for, give or take, 2500 bucks, um, but you can get two of these for the cost of one Gibson Les Paul, and some of you are thinking, well, wouldn't you want the one Gibson Les Paul? Absolutely not. I would take this guitar any day of the week over anything I've ever played. And I've played some pretty expensive guitars. I've got a lot of them. I've got quite a few <laughs> up here. I mean, I could just have my pick of the litter. I've got Fenders. I've got, you know, I've got a couple of Gibsons. Got a Gibson Reverse Firebird I like. A couple of Les Pauls. Uh, Telecaster from Fender is probably my favorite Fender. But as far as the PVs go, the HP2 is bar none. The best guitar I've ever owned. And that's uh, that's what's in my hands currently. I've got my tuxedo. That's the one I call it. It's white and black. If you've ever seen my band, 85 Overdrive Play, you know what it uh, looks like. And there are so many people. Eddie Van Halen, this is, I like to bring him up. He's one of my top favorite guitar players. And he was, I can't remember who he was talking to, but the guy was was like, how do you get that sound? And Eddie's sound was called the brown sound because no matter how loud it got, it was, it was not, it didn't hurt your ears. It was the brown sound. And by the way, PV put out an amp in collaboration with Eddie Van Halen called the 5150. And that, that one achieved the brown sound as close as Eddie could get it. Uh, not being through his original, which was a Marshall. And that, that was a killer amp. I've got one of those laying around here, too. It's, they, they changed the name when Eddie left, of course. And now they call that the 6505. Great amp. 
Still doesn't top the invective. But I digress. Eddie was talking to somebody, and somebody had asked him about, hey, how do you get that sound? You know, and he said, well, I just, you know, I do this, I do that. And, you know, getting all the technical stuff that uh, you guitar players would know and you that don't play probably have no idea what I'm talking about. But how did he get that sound? Combination of uh, guitar, amp, pickups, which are the things that pick up the signal from the strings. So the guy said, well, here, can you dial that in on my amp? And he had, I can't remember what it was. He had, I think he had a Marshall amp at the time, this other individual, this other guitar player. He's a big name guitar player. And he had the crappiest guitar because all his stuff was somewhere else. So he just had this, you know, practice guitar. And Eddie picked it up, plugged it in, didn't make any changes, and just started wailing. And the guy looked at him and said, well, that's your sound. And that's when it hit Eddie. Most of the sound is in your fingertips. And that's so very true. If you've got a relatively decent sounding guitar that's in tune and a relatively decent sounding guitar amp, the sound is already in your hands. It's how you attack it, your picking, your approach. And that stuck with me. And then from that point on, I didn't get so hung up on, oh, i got to have the greatest amp out there. They call them tone chasers. They're forever chasing that perfect tone. It's in your fingers. It literally is in your fingers. So there you go. Got a little equipment, a little guitar playing, a little tech talk with you. Change of pace for the podcast. What do you think? Delving into the taboo world of conservatism and rock artistry, Nick Summers and the right side of rock. Here's the final cut. I want to close out this week's podcast with a a new release from a band that was probably one of the hugest bands of the 80s, Def Leppard. They've got a brand new album. Just came out a couple of days ago, as a matter of fact. Ready to Ignite 2022. Rock music legends Def Leppard returned with their 12th full-length album, Diamond Star Halos. Does that sound familiar? It's taken from a T-Rex song, Bang a Gong. Sure. It's available in LP, digital formats, multiple configurations, exclusive bundles, including newly designed album merch. All of that's been launched. Their first single, Fire It Up. Thought we'd toss a little sample of that out. Def Leppard. New stuff. Fire it up. Since I lost my heaven Put a timeline, kid, I'm on cloud seven Jimmy top level with a chemical metal Heat her on high like a pot on kettle Jukebox got to raise it up another level The young street apostles with a hallelujah pedal Stretches in the pictures, keep on dancing with the devil Swimming with the king like an Elvis made a pelvis Bring the big beat back Bring the big beat back
The Right Side of Rock with Nick Summers.